Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Friday, December 15th. There's been some baseball news. We are obviously going to talk about all the moves the Dodgers have made, getting Shohei Otani, reportedly getting Tyler Glasnow. We're going to talk about the big move the Giants finally made, signing the Grandson of the Wind, which is the coolest nickname I think a baseball player could have. The Royals are making a ton of moves, like even this morning that we're going to get into. We're going to talk about Blake Snell versus Yamamoto, and we are going to finish with some important podcast news. But Matt, first, the Dodgers, I know like we recorded last week, and then the whole Otani to the Dodgers thing went down, where maybe he's on a plane, and no, the Shark Tank guy's on a plane, and everything got weird. And we're not going to rehash all of that because I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you are aware of that whole story. It just it's wild to me that the more we learn about this, the more that this was inevitable. Right. He had his sights set on the Dodgers and maybe like two other places. It didn't seem like he wanted to come to New York and he wanted them to give him exactly the terms that he wanted. Right. Which was I want all this money deferred. I want a couple of names in the contract uh, or I can opt out if you guys leave, right? Like the owner, Andrew Friedman, and he got exactly what he wanted. So he's happy. And the Dodgers got exactly what they wanted, which is Shohei Otani and somewhat reasonable contract terms. And the only teams who should be unhappy are the four other teams in the National League West, right? Like that's where I am on this. I know there's a lot of angst. This is bad for baseball. I don't think this is bad for baseball. I think this is a very good outcome unless you, you know, want your team to win more baseball games against the Dodgers. Yeah, I think so much of the angst around this comes down to the fact of, like, how it all came out, right? Like, if it had been first reported that, like, Shoyatani gets a 10-year deal with an average annual value of $46 million, people would have been like, okay, that sounds about right. Uh, and then later you found out, oh, there's actually a lot of deferred money, and he'll end up getting paid $700 million over the life of the deal, but 98% of it will be deferred. You know, you would have been like, oh, that's kind of weird, but like, hey, whatever. Like, so I think the fact that it was first reported as 70 million a year, and then it, we find out the, the opposite way, like, oh, actually, it's deferred. The sticker shock of like 700 million is what people are set on. And I'll admit, even I don't like fully appreciate the value of, you know, deferred money and how it all works. And, you know, like the value, just like how you calculate the value, net present value for future value and all that. Like, I'll admit that, but even now I can at least appreciate that there's, there's a lot of nuance here. And I agree with your larger point. Like, it's bad news for the rest of the NL West. I'll say that, you know, because we could talk more with the Dodgers and we should because there's a lot more going on there. But ultimately, it's like, oh, the Dodgers are probably going to win the division again. That's kind of where I'm at. It was reported that the Giants offered him the exact same deal. And almost certainly other teams, if given the opportunity, would have done the same deal, right? If he picked the Blue Jays under the same terms, the Blue Jays absolutely take this. If he'd gone to the Yankees or Mets under the same terms and said, hey, I actually I do want to play in New York. Will you do this deal? They both would have said yes in an absolute heartbeat. I think that's where I'm coming from is a lot of people seem to be think that the Dodgers gamed the system or, you know, got some sort of unfair advantage here. It, it That's where the man wanted to be like good for him. He wanted to be at a place where he could stay close to, you know, his new home in Southern California, it seems like and win. But the thing that struck me about this contract, I know that what I'm about to say is going to sound insane was how straightforward it ended up being. And I know that's nuts, right? Because we've all had to learn so much more about the time value of money than I ever really wanted to and deferments. But I think when we were thinking about what kind of contract would he get, we all thought there were going to be like four different opt-outs and incentives based on how much he's healthy enough to pitch. And it really just came down to here is a number of years and here's how much money you will get. And yes, a lot of it's deferred. And like, that's it. There's no opt-outs here. There's no weird, complicated stuff. That was the most stunning thing to me. I'm re- I'm shocked by that. 
I could not agree more. I and I'm I've been on the record on this podcast as saying like I'm and I'm not alone, like reasonably skeptical of his future as a pitcher and what that might look like just because the pitchers having Tommy John multiple times, there were you know, there's a lot of risk there and who knows what he's gonna be like when he comes back as a pitcher. But you're obviously buying the fact that he's gonna continue to be a great hitter. He obviously even if he doesn't pitch, he still has a certain aura that he's developed because of the fact that he was a pitcher that it is very marketable, very enticing, makes people want to buy tickets, watch your games, all that stuff. And I do trust the Dodgers organization more so than most to figure out how to sort of ease him back into pitching in a way that will maximize his effectiveness. Their track record in terms of, you know, getting the most out of out of pitchers, out of players in general is pretty strong. And I trust their infrastructure a lot more than another team who might have signed him and been like, shoot, we got to get this guy back on the mind ASAP because we need to sell tickets. We, you know, it's like the Dodgers, I feel like if there's a team that can really get him back on the mound in a way that will maximize his effectiveness there, they are on the short list of teams I would trust to do so. Absolutely. And you can't just look at this as a dollars per war kind of contract, right? Because we know there's so much off-field value and all the advertising that's going to come in and all of that. The last thing I'll say on Otani is, um, you know, over the years, Matt has kind of poked fun at me a little bit because like, listen, we, you know, we're supposed to be objective, but I grew up a Dodgers fan. I still like the Dodgers. Matt grew up a Mets fan. He doesn't pretend he likes the Mets. Every once in a while, Matt would be like, hey, is that a, is that Dodger fan Mike showing up? And I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. It's not the same as when I was a kid. I, I got to tell you over the last week or so, it's like, yeah, let's go. Let's get the season started. And here's the thing. They still need a ton of pitching. They still need a ton of pitching. And the first step towards that is reportedly happening today. They are going to trade for Tampa Bay Rays starter Tyler Glasnow, which I think is maybe the most obvious fit of player in team. Like I made a joke about this on Twitter more than a year ago. Other people have made jokes about this going back further. They're just so obviously a match. Like the way he pitches fits what the Dodgers are trying to do. And yet I'm not sure it's a perfect fit. So here's the whole trade, right? They're going to get Glasnow. They are going to get veteran right-handed outfielder Manuel Margot. They are going to uh, send back Ryan Pepio, who is a young starter, and outfielder Johnny DeLuca. And then reportedly the Dodgers are going to sign uh, Glasnow to an extension. This was going to be his last year before free agency. And so they're giving him uh, four years and 110 million new dollars. And then there's a fifth-year option that either side can pick up. And it gets a little more complicated, but he can't walk is the point. And so what they're doing, I think, that the reaction most people have is, wow, Glasnow is really good but he's never healthy, right? So last year he threw 120 innings, which was somehow a career high. He's been in the league for eight years because he's been hurt many times. And if you look at the Dodgers rotation, they need innings. They need innings so badly, especially if you're losing Pepio, who is going to be like their third starter. Because right now their rotation is Walker Bueller, who is coming off of a major injury. Uh, Bobby Miller, who looks great, but you know he was a rookie and you want to kind of ramp him up a little bit slowly. Glasnow and then Gavin Stone, Emmett Sheehan. Maybe you get Kershaw back later in the year. Maybe you don't. And so Glasnow, to me, is not going to fill those innings. I, I think you got to look at this from the right point of view. If the expectation is he comes in and he throw, he doesn't throw 170 innings, then the, the trade is a bust. I don't agree. They think they're going to get to the playoffs. They need someone who can start game one or game two of the playoffs. I, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit here. If he throws 50 regular season innings and starts two or three playoff games, they'll be happy. That, that's probably underselling it. More than 50. But that's what the goal is here. It's for someone who can start in the postseason because that's what they have not had. 
You just have to make sure he's actually healthy on September 15th right. and ramped up to pitch. <laughs> That's right. That to me, I agree with what you're saying, but that assumes you can guarantee he will be healthy when you need him to be healthy. So that's where I guess the risk comes in for the Dodgers in this situation. But I imagine up until this, they were still below the, the competitive balance tax threshold because of Otani's deferred money. This will probably, because I believe there's no deferred money in the Glasnow deal, assuming it goes through, will put them right up against it. I imagine they're prepared to go past it again. They intentionally like tried to reset in anticipation of trying to get Otani. So I imagine they are prepared to go back over and they've been rumored to be one of the favorites to sign Yamamoto. And if not Yamamoto, it could be Jordan Montgomery. I don't, I don't know, but I feel like there probably will be someone with a better track record of reliability and pitching 150 innings who will be joining the Dodgers at some point, either free agency or trade in the next three months. I think that's more than one guy, right? I think they want Yamamoto. Everybody wants Yamamoto. We'll find out about that soonish, you know? You could look at it and say it doesn't have to be a star either. Like Lucas Giolito, I'm not sure what to make of him. Do you think he's a reliable league average pitcher? Someone you could pencil in for 180, like, decent innings? And you probably don't want him starting a postseason game, but if it has to be, like, the third or fourth starter, you could live with it. I think you can do that. You could trade for Cease. You could trade for Burns. There's all these options everybody knows about. If you get Yamamoto and some sort of back-end starter, that is an amazing, amazing offseason for them. Even though I don't think this is a slam dunk of a trade, right? Like from the Rays' point of view, this is a very Rays trade. You know, they have Glasnow, who's very good. He's going to make $25 million this year. And Margot, who is not as good as I remembered him being, who was going to make uh, about $13 million, I think. Uh, and then they flipped them to the Dodgers in exchange for Ryan Pepio, who I think could be pretty good. And Johnny DeLuca, who pretty he's like a, a speedy outfielder who I'm not sure is actually going to be worse than Margot this year. Like Margot seems to me the cost of entry to get to Glasnow because when I thought of Margot, like how I remembered him was really, really good defensive outfielder who was a, a decent enough hitter. And over the last two years, it hasn't really been true. He had a knee injury in 2022. The speed has declined. He's a good outfielder. He's not a great outfielder. And when I thought about the platoon guy they really needed for Jason Hayward, I was thinking more of like a Teoscar Hernandez type. And I don't know, Margot falls a little flat for me unless you think about it as you weren't getting glass now without this. A fair point. I mean, Margot had a, he was, for his career, he's been much better against lefties than righties. Um, last year, he was not actually, he had a reverse split, but I think I'll I'll take the track record and say like, okay, he will probably be a reasonable platoon partner. The Dodgers lineup is very left-handed still, and it would not surprise me actually if they went and just to go through it, if you look at it, it's you know lefties that are kind of penciled in to be regulars, Otani, Freeman, Max Muncy, Jason Hayward, Gavin Lux, James Outman. That's seven lefties right down, right there, uh, or six lefties. Some of them could be platooned, probably will be with Margot, but I could still see them at, again, like you, you mentioned Teoscar Hernandez. If the Dodgers end up bringing in a guy like that, would not surprise me at all. But yeah, I think that taking on Margot, and didn't the Rays actually send money to the Dodgers in this trade? <laughs> the Rays... The Rays sent $4 million to the Dodgers, which is not a large amount of money in today's baseball. But the optics of that are so funny to me. The Otani signs for $700 million, which isn't really real, but still. And they're taking on money from like literally the Tampa Bay Rays. It's, I think, the funniest possible outcome here. <laughs> it's it's, uh, um, it's, it's yeah, not what you would expect. No, the other trade they can make, um, trade for Dylan Cease and maybe throw in a little Luis Robert. I feel like that could that could solve some of their problems. Hey now, Dodger, Dodger fan Mike is... <laughs> If we're being greedy, uh, which we definitely are. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Connections podcast. 
We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrello and Matt Myers. A couple of other interesting moves happened this week that actually have nothing at all to do with the Dodgers. The first one came in San Francisco, where the Giants, as we all know, desperate for stars, desperate for big splashes after a couple misses over the last couple of years, uh, signed Korean outfielder Jung-Hoo Lee. And uh, his story is actually pretty cool. His father, uh, Jean Gam Lee, was a very good player back in the 1990s. And he was so fast that his nickname was Son of the Wind. So now Jung Hoo Lee's nickname is Grandson of the Wind, which is unbelievably cool. The contract was a little bit larger than I thought it would be. Six years, $113 million with an opt-out after the fourth season. And I think the Giants desperately needed to do something to make the team more interesting and more watchable. And I think Lee will do that. I have some concerns about this one, right? So for those of you who don't know his profile, he's an outfielder who has an unbelievable bat-to-ball contact skill. Over the last five years, a 6% strikeout rate, which is absolutely wild. Now, you don't see the kind of velocity in Korea you do in America. That will go up a little bit, I'm sure. But still, this guy is something like a Luis Arise batted ball contact guy, which is amazing. And if you could put Luis Arise in center field, that is a really, really valuable player. Where's the butt? Well, we've learned two things, right? One is that just making contact isn't good enough. I think the Cleveland Guardians of the last couple of years have proven that. You know, you've got to be able to make a good contact. And for someone who's named grandson of the wind, he's not a burner. There are some questions, at least that I've read, about whether he can actually stay in center. So there's a fine line in the skill set to me between Lisa Rise, center fielder, awesome, or Andrew Benatendi, somewhat less awesome. Because then he's like a corner outfielder with poor power and not you know making a lot of bad contact i'm not sure about this one i'm glad they did something i don't know where this is gonna go i mean it's and also when you're sort of so reliant on batting average and kind of putting the ball in play there's also just like you know the vagaries of like batted balls in play and like one year you might hit 280 and one year you might hit 330 you know we see this we've seen this with a rise we've seen this with jeff mcneil stephen kwan like these kinds of players where they can be very entertaining when things are going right and not very productive when things are going wrong. But I'm I'm here for this because, like, he's very intriguing. I think he's going to be a lot of fun. Different, the, the Giants just desperately need some jolt of, you know, they're kind of a team without an identity right now. They're, like, a, a very kind of, like, very middle-of-the-road team. They don't really have any stars. They're kind of – even their best player, Logan Webb, is one of the least – probably one of the least recognizable players uh, of his caliber in baseball in terms of, like, if you're walking down the street, people might say, oh, look, there goes Jesse Plemons. And it's – I'm glad he's – like, the Giants kind of needed this this kind of player. Hopefully can, like, really give them a little spark and give them a little bit of an identity. And I imagine they're going to – they're still out there trying to sign some of these other free agents who are still available, mostly on the pitching side, but, like – it's good to see, you know, after all the hand-wringing of the Giants not getting a guy, he's obviously not at the level of Aaron Judge. He might be at the level of Carlos Correa, I don't know. But it's good to see that the, the Giants land, land a guy who could uh, give them something. Let's take you out of the Cody Bellinger sweepstakes for them. They have a lot of outfielders, right? They have Lee, Slater, Conforto, Hanniger, Yastrzemski. Not that some of those guys couldn't be traded. But this isn't a complete lineup to me, you know, and you can play some first base obviously too. So I'm not sure if they're still going to try to go spend at the level to get Bellinger as well, but I'm not sure the lineup is good enough without somebody like him. I guess, you know what? Matt Chapman is still the perfect fit there, right? And we haven't heard like anything about him, but Bellinger's options do seem to be somewhat dwindling to the Cubs and the Blue Jays and not really sure where else. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not just. The, I mean, they also all these guys are left-handed. They've so many of these guys are left-handed too, right? Lee, Lamont, Wade, Conforto, Yastrzemski. So, like, adding Bellinger to that mix, it would really. But again, they could move. They could move one of the other ones, and it just feels like a little bit of feels like a little bit of an odd fit in San Francisco. Yeah, and as for really, at the end of the day, I think there's a pretty decent chance that uh, my fears are unfounded, and he turns out to be a perfect fit there, right? And, and very interesting, and sprays the ball all around that outfield, and is exactly what the team needs. Our second topic: the Kansas City Royals are not a team you normally think of when it comes to activity on the free agent market, and they have been somewhat shockingly active. Earlier this offseason, they'd already signed Garrett Hampson, Will Smith, Chris Stratton, and then over the last couple of days, Seth Lugo, and then today, Michael Waka and Hunter Renfro. Those are a collection of guys. I remember most of those guys, except they're still playing now. And uh, as Jeff Passon said, if you look at all of those guys, they have committed $105 million in free agency to the list of names I just got, which like full stop is great. You know, that's a team that we've not seen be super active in past years. They lost 106 games last year. The central is winnable. So good. That's like, I'm very happy to see this. Um, you know, Bobby Witt had a big step forward last year. Vinny Pasquantino should be healthy. Cole Reagan's looked like he might be in a breakout. I'm not sure how much better they're going to be. Uh, that's wrong. They'll be better. I guess I'm not sure how much of a threat in the American League Central they'll be with a lot of these guys. Because like, as I saw someone say on Twitter, Waka, Renfro, and Stratton uh, can all walk away after one season, right? So it's about winning now. And this is a win now team. That That's, I'm not so sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think you said it with the 106 losses, right? They were probably going to be better this year just by like, it's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> and even if the AL Central is probably the weakest, I don't know if it probably is the weakest division in baseball, assume you're going to, you should at least at the bare minimum assume you need 85 wins to win a division. It's possible it might be 82 in this, with the, with, with the balanced schedule. Um, but you got to assume, and like, I don't see a leap of 29 wins. If you want to do that, if you are the Royals, I feel like you have to be going after some more high players with more upside, right? Like, should they be going to sign Cody Bellinger, right? Like, I don't even believe in Cody Bellinger, but there's, like, a non-zero chance that he could, like, be, like, a seven-win player and actually be the be the difference between them, you know, making that vault. Like, Hunter Renfro is not going to – never say never. He's not going to be a seven-win player. Like, the best-case scenario, he's, like, would be three-win player, right? And so that's that's where I'm at with it. Like, I, I, I'm i all for it. If you want to try and do this, and maybe hey, maybe – Maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe they will go sign out, go sign Cody Bellinger. But if you're hoping to be like, you know what, let's take advantage of this weak division and try and win right now, you need some players with more upside than Hunter Renfro, Michael Walker, and Seth Lugo. All right, listen, if we're just talking Cody Bellinger fits, uh, just baseball fits, the Marlins should be in, the Guardians should be in, uh, you know, the, the Brewers should be in. There's so many places where he would fit. That's probably not going to happen. I think I'm with you on the Royals. The one thing I keep thinking about, though, is I think the Twins are the best roster, right? But they've taken a bit of a step back. They lost Sonny Gray. They lost Kenta Maeda. They have not yet really replaced either of those guys. Now, obviously, there's time to do so. But I I still think the Twins are the class of the division, in part because I think Carlos Correa will be better than he was last year, in part because I believe in a lot of those rookies they had. Like, if Royce Lewis stays healthy, I think he could be a real star. You know, Matt Walner. I'm actually pretty high on Matt Walner. Uh, Edouard Julien. These guys were not up at the beginning of the year. And I think it's a good thing that the Royals will be better I just think you're still going to have, you know, Jordan Lyles and Brady Singer in the rotation. And as impressed as I was by Cole Regans, it's only what, 10 starts, something like that. <laughs> there's, a, there's a long way from here to there for him to prove that he is now like a top five starter 
for an entire season. I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm happy from a Royals fed. This is probably the most productive offseason that they've had in a number of years. Uh, I'm just not sure it gets them far enough. It, and good for our guy, Seth Lugo, right? We've been talking about him on this podcast for a long time. He yeah. For years, he lobbied. He wanted to be a starter. The Mets used him almost exclusively in, the re- exclusively in relief. And he had a couple of seasons where he was not like the top tier reliever, where he was like a second tier, like high-end setup man. But he became free agent, and he wanted to be a starter, signed with the Padres, was a starter, was pretty good, wasn't great. I was kind of looking under the hood a little bit more today in preparation for the podcast. The underlying numbers weren't great. The expected ERA was about a run higher than the actual ERA. But he proved he could do it, and now there's two ways you can kind of look at it, one of which might be if you want to be the pessimist, like, well, is, he gonna, is his arm going to be able to bounce back? And, you know, a lot we've seen pitchers who up their innings total the next year, maybe they, they're not able to – to, to do it again. But then the flip side could be like, well, actually, maybe he's just unlocking what he can do as a starter, right? And that's what I think the Royals are banking on. I like this. Of all the Royals deals this week, the Lugo one is the one that I think is the the best the best of the bunch. Because it's also, it's a three-year deal with an opt-out or a two-year deal with a player option, you know, potato, potato. But if he pitches well and the team doesn't succeed, he'll have a lot of trade value at the, at the deadline as a starting pitcher making $15 million a year. Um, so... But I also think he retains some upside, given that he just has one year as a starter under his belt. So that I will give the, the Royals credit for that one. I did like that move. How many above average bats do the Royals have in their lineup? Bobby Witt Jr. Yeah, I'm going to say one and a half. Because because we don't know what to expect from Vinny P. Because Vinny, exactly we don't know. Exactly right. Is he supposed to? Exactly I'll, be, right. I'll be honest. Is he supposed to be ready for opening day? Yes, uh, he, I believe he is. I saw him, uh, I heard him on the radio recently saying that he essentially is cleared. He's done doing physical therapy. Next step is uh, full swings. So he's still got a couple months. My understanding is he's ready for opening day. As we all know, I'm a huge Vinny P fan, but, you know, shoulder injuries are a little bit scary for hitters. Bobby Witt's a superstar. And then it's like, if you look at the uh, steamer projections, right, the next best projected hitters are MJ Melendez, who I feel like they might trade because he can't catch anymore. He's an outfielder. Edward Olivares and Hunter Renfro. That's because it's been a minute since Sal Perez has been an above average hitter, right? And then you've got a whole bunch of, I like Michael Garcia. Maybe you like Michael Massey, Kyle Isbell. I don't know. They still feel two or three bats short and then also two or three arms short. And it just feels like a lot of extra work, a lot of more heavy lifting yet to do that. I'm not sure is actually going to happen. Now, one way they could do those things, which seems pretty unlikely, is uh, to go after yet another former Padre, Blake Snell. That would fit. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, you wanted to talk about this, and I thought it was interesting. The starting pitching market is being held up a little bit by the fact that Yoshinobu Yamamoto has not chosen where he's going to go yet. I think we all expect he will soon. He's reportedly meeting with teams right now. The contract number is going to be, I think, very high. I think extremely high. Let me give you a, a, a sneak peek of something here. Uh, every year, as I've done for the last nine years, this will be year 10 somehow. For MLB Network in January, I do my top 10 lists at every position. And yesterday... I was thinking about my top 10 starting pitchers, and the more I thought about it, the more I could not come up with an argument to not include Yamamoto on my list of top 10 starters right now, even though he hasn't thrown a pitch in the major leagues. Like That is how highly I think of him. That is how high I think the contract is going to go. And In fact, I will probably put him above Blake Snell, the two-time Cy Young winner, defending Cy Young winner, who has had, I want to say a quiet winner for someone of that stature, but we certainly haven't heard his name as much, right? As, as the other guys. You think that's just because of Yamamoto? Yeah, I do. I think that like, and I come into this thing that like, I have my my skepticism about Snell like a lot of people do, right? But it's kind of, I can't remember a two-time Cy Young winner hitting the market off of a Cy Young year 
with less discussion about them. And I think that like, you know, the Yamamoto discussion, you know, there's all the big market teams around them. It's rare that you get like all like the big, you know, it's like the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Mets. Now the Phillies are apparently in like all these Red Sox, like they're all in on him. So I think that's really going to drive up the price and he could get a contract close to, I think Garrett Cole set the record for a starting pitcher with like a $324 million deal. I think Yamamoto is going to be, I don't think he's going to top it, but I think it's going to be close. And I totally understand why. He's 25. He has been the best pitcher in NPB for a few years. And we have seen pretty good success rate of top pitchers from NPB coming over and being dominant in the in the United States. So like I'm not I'm not doubting that he will be a good pitcher. But like the flip side of that is like there's got to be some doubt, right? Like it's there's still some unknowns here. Whereas we have like I can imagine Blake Snell being here like I've been doing this here. Yeah, I've had some down seasons, but like I just won the Cy Young Award. I had a two two five ERA, and this guy. You know, I, mean, I mean, I realize not everything is a war per dollar discussion, right? Because like at a certain point, you just need the wins. Like, it doesn't matter how much it costs, you want them. But like you're going to look at like Yamamoto could be like ten for three hundred, and Snell could be like seven for two hundred, and it's kind of like when I frame it like that, I'm kind of like I'm not so sure like where where to go here. Yeah, you are making the argument that I imagine Blake Snell's agent is making, right? Hey, 225 ERA. You don't want a 225 ERA. And I would imagine most of the smart teams are like, we think he's very good. We think the strikeout stuff is obviously real. But, you know, a 344 FIP and a 377 expected ERA and uh, a left on base rate that's one of the highest in decades. Like, I, I personally think Blake Snell will be very good next year. And he might even be better next year and he will have a worse ERA. Like that, that is how confident I am. The 225 ERA thing isn't real. And then if you think about Yamamoto, here's what's changed, right? Not everything has to go back to data in baseball. I get that. But you're not just scouting with the eye test anymore like you were back in the day. You know, back in the 90s, when we first started to see the wave of Japanese pitchers come over, Hideo Nomo, huge success. Uh, Hideki Urabu, remember him? Huge disaster, right? Now, I don't remember Urabu well enough to know why but it's very possible. Maybe if you'd had him pitching in front of the, you know, Trackman and Hawkeye and all that, they might've said, Oh, that's a, that's a flat fastball. That thing is going to get crushed. And you don't have that with Yamamoto, right? They have all the data. He pitched on the world baseball classic. You've got the data from Japan. The teams have absolutely analyzed this. And uh, I think the, the comp I saw, I think David Adler wrote, this was like, uh, he might have Kevin Gosman's splitter and Clayton Kershaw's curveball. And it's like, do you want that? Yeah, yes, I do. Especially at his age. So, while I hear you, I personally would value Yamamoto higher than Snell, even though he hasn't yet done it in the major leagues. I would value him higher than Snell, too. I think it's more just – I do sometimes wonder if there's just like almost like a shiny new toy where it's like – it's a little bit like door number one, right? And But I think your point is well taken about the fact that we now have more data to, to support the quality of the stuff and it's not just looking at a stat line and just like scouting the, the eye test, as you said. And to your point before about Snell, about having a higher ERA no matter what, it's funny. In 2022, he actually had a lower expected ERA – than he did this year when he won the Cy Young Award. Granted, he also pitched a lot fewer innings, but uh, it was a 319 expected ERA, which speaks to the fact that he is he's a very good pitcher, but also because he walks so many hitters, he's very reliant on on, on like left on base rate. So like it's that's enough like he's gonna I think that's part of the reason why he's a guy who you see these big swings in ERA is because it's like, oh, I just happened to strand like 15 more runners than I did the year before. And like that accounts for like 15 fewer runs. And that's you know, it's you can't it's almost like batting average. You can't count on it being that stable from year to year. Do you have any good feeling whatsoever on where he goes? I, I know we won't know this till Yamamoto chooses, right? But he he is probably 
he should go to the Orioles or the Reds. Do I see either of those teams doing a contract like that? Probably not. The Twins, I think, are a great example like that, too. The Cubs, maybe? I, I just, I'm not sure where he goes right now. He'll have suitors. It's just not clear to me who the number one team is. It should be the Cardinals. I know they already got starting pitching. They need someone who can miss bats. Like, there's a lot of places it would work. I'm just not really sure what the most obvious outcome here is. I think if the Mets don't get Yamamoto, they will sign Blake Snell. Okay. Uh, the other one I should have mentioned is he he really seems to want to go to the Mariners. But that seems incredibly <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing they don't really need is pitching. So, yes, they could sign him and trade Logan Gilbert, I think, would be that that would be the play. But if they're going to spend money, maybe they should just sign Cody Bellinger. But it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like they're going to be be in that space either. I'm mostly just antsy because it does feel like Yamamoto is like everyone was like, oh, Otani's holding up the market. It's like now it actually seems like oh, Yamamoto is holding up the market. I'm mostly interested because I think there's going to be some interesting trades. I, and I, I want the trades to start happening. And those are not going to happen until Yamamoto and Snell sign and Montgomery sign. But that's then it's like, okay, Corbin Burns, Dylan Cease, Shane Bieber. I think there's a good chance all these guys get traded, but I don't think it's going to happen until the free agent side. So I'm just impatient. I want the action. I want to see where these guys go because trades are more fun to analyze. They're more fun to talk about. There's two teams to evolve. You see how teams d- value different things. You know, that's that's what I want to see. I want to see them either soon or not soon at all. Let the people who work in baseball have a holiday week, right? <laughs> Don't drop <laughs> trades on Christmas morning or December 26th. Not not selfishly for you and me, for the people who work for the teams, for even for Blake Snell, right? Let the man enjoy his holiday. Fair enough. Fair enough. We will take a quick break, and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We promised big podcast news, and here it is. Uh, This may or may not be the final episode of the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are going to go on an indefinite hiatus and figure out what to do next with podcasts. Uh, We've been doing a version of this since back in 2015. If you remember the StatCast podcast, at first it was just me. Uh, And then very fortunately, Matt came on a little later, which has been great. I don't know how many episodes we've done of these shows together. Hundreds, I'm sure. Uh, And I've enjoyed each and every one of them. We have remembered some guys. Uh, We have uh, welcomed on Sarah uh, Langs and Andy Bell to do their own version over the last year or two. We have uh, had some pretty cool interviews. We talked to Larry Lester about maybe finding Willie Mays' 661st home run, which I think is still a thing. Uh, and we've had a number of uh, listeners who have been pretty like reliable. Like Luke Arkins, the Mariners fan, he tweets at me all the time saying, hey, I love the podcast. And it's like, so, so appreciated. And uh, it's it's been a whole lot of fun. And we're going to take a break. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what's next, but I'm guessing this isn't the last you've heard of us, uh, at least in the podcast space. We'll figure out something soon. But for now, uh, thank you so much for listening. And Matt, thank you for talking to me every week for like the last uh, six years here. I think it's it was appropriate that we talked. We touched on Seth Lugo on this podcast and it was it was not intentional but i think i started doing this podcast with you in 2016 his first season because i remember it was when we were first getting full access to statcast data and he was the one of the guys who jumped out was like this random guy on the mets who had the highest spin curveball and we're like oh this guy's interesting we talked about him a lot i would say (laughs) the players we've talked about a lot and then he came on he was a guest at one point he was was not the most interesting guest we've ever had but he was very friendly and nice to talk to Yes. So I think it was appropriate. We, he, we touched on him and we didn't even plan that. It just so happened that he signed this week. It feels like feels like kismet, I guess. It has been a lot of fun. Um, if I, you know, think back, probably the coolest thing that ever happened on this podcast was something I wasn't even involved with. 
was Adam Adovino saying he could strike out Babe Ruth, which like made headlines, which was like a news cycle, <laughs> which was like a news cycle on ESPN for like two days, which was pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, I think that I think back fondly to the ones we sh- we did during the pandemic when we were bored and didn't know what to do. There was one where I had my little league teammate on, uh, Teddy Wayne, shout out to Teddy Wayne, tell the story of our triumphant victory in the uh, 1990 uh, South Riverdale Little League Championship. And then there was one where I think you played old calls for Sarah and me, and we tried to guess. We had to guess what the play was. You just like you you played like a snippet, and we had to guess what it was. It'd be like a snippet of like ten seconds of Vince Scully. We had to use like context clues to figure out. It was like, oh, this was Sandy Koufax's perfect game, or or whatever it was. So those those are those are some of the things that stand out to me. And as Mike said. This is not the end of us. It's more just like we want to take a break. We want to rethink the cadence. We want to rethink the format and just, you know, also just the, the larger podcast picture um, at MLB. Yeah, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to we've had a number of producers, Danny Wex and Danny G and Ryan and Alex and Walter and James is with us today. And uh, not so much a goodbye as a smell you later, I guess. And uh, we will be back at some point soon to tell you what's next. And thank you so much for listening. This has been the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast.